Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Well, hi, guys. Welcome. As you get ready to listen to this episode of The Mindful Minute, an interview with Thomas More, I will be off on a little mini retreat for myself. Nothing fancy. Just a pre-summer solstice practice, getting me ready to lead you in a summer solstice practice. So the solstice is coming up this Sunday, June 20th, and I'll be hosting my last live virtual retreat of the year. This is a mini, mini retreat. It's only 90 minutes long. We're going to do two 30-minute practices, have some discussion, some journaling, a chance to connect. You know, I love solstices. If you've listened to this podcast, you must have heard me say that a hundred times, but I do. And one of the reasons I love the summer solstice so much is that traditionally this is thought of as a celebration of the sun, right? This is the day of the most light. And when we celebrate the sun, we think about male energy. We think about fiery, hot, passionate, striving, doing, achieving. But also the summer solstice is a celebration of fertility, of the mother, of abundance, of female energy. Like anything that's worth contemplating, the solstice holds paradox. And within paradox, what we find is an opportunity to be curious, an opportunity to explore balance. So I'm inviting you to join me for this last live virtual retreat of the year. It's this Sunday from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to celebrate the solstice through meditation. We can tap into the insights and the energies that we need for this next section of the year. In this practice, we're going to be, of course, honoring the seasons and the transition as a way to stay in tune with nature and her inherent wisdom. We're also celebrating for the beauty and the magic that lies within ancient ritual and the ever-present value of connecting with other people. And this is a really interesting internal transition that we get to work with, because at this moment in time, we are indeed transitioning how we connect. And so perhaps we're exploring emerging or re-emerging or perhaps even disengaging in a different way. And so we use our practice. We use the shifts in nature. We use paradox to help us find our footing to help us find balance. So again, I hope you will consider joining me. I would love to see your faces on a Zoom call. You can find all the details on my website, merylarnett.com. Click on events. Link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All right. Well, Thomas Moore, welcome to the Mindful Minute podcast. 
I have been so looking forward to having this conversation with you. Care of the Soul (laughs) is a book I have read probably 10 times at this point, and I continue to revisit it. Thank you for that. And I am about three quarters of the way through Soul Therapy, and I've loved it so far. Oh, excellent. I'm so glad. And is Soul Therapy out now? Can we get it now in bookstores? Yes. It came out uh, yesterday, I think it was. Yeah. Congratulations. The 25th, whatever day that was, two days ago. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So the Mindful Minute is, in essence, a meditation podcast. We talk about the how, the why, the what of meditation. And I thought before we jump into the book, I just wondered if maybe you could share a little bit about your own reflective practices or meditative practices or or stillness practices, if you have any. Sure, absolutely. So you know that uh, when I was young, I was a monk and uh, for 13 years. And so I studied meditation then. And I meditated probably an hour and a half a day for those 13 years. So that was a kind of empty meditation. I don't know what to call it. It's kind of a no-focus. Uh... But anyway, it was quite wonderful. And uh, now I've changed, though. I've changed in my taste and my ideas. And uh, I have learned, I think, mainly from Henry David Thoreau. Uh, he had He had a comment that really stuck with me. I read him a lot. And he had a comment that that for him, it was important to contemplate within nature, to go out in nature and contemplate. For him, that was the most important thing. And what I got from that, that, and it fits in with my larger philosophy, that it's important to be contemplative. Uh, By the way, that phrase I prefer to, 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 uh, I prefer contemplate to meditate because it suggests contemplating something and I like the idea of being in the world with your spirituality to be in the world to make it a worldly not just separate I think anything that separate world from spirit is a really is a mistake and it's caused a lot of trouble so I in my now when I meditate one of the best ways I do it is I play the piano I, uh, I play classical music, and I do that about an hour a day, usually. So for me, that's really a good form of being in a contemplative place. I lose myself in it. I'm gone. And my fingers and my ears are very much involved. It's a very physical thing. And uh, it, it takes me not into some place that I want to go, but it takes me where it wants to go. It takes me. And I think that's another important aspect of it, not to be in control so much. Uh, That's why I don't personally care much for guided meditation, because I think I'm being told where, you know, like uh, somebody's telling me what to do. That way, I'd much rather be taken by something that is not, not human. Music. I love that. And I love that comment about the practice being in the world rather than removed from it. And I I made a note, actually, because in the beginning of your book, you write about the meaning of therapy. And the book is not just for therapists, but it's for us lay people too, right? Anybody that is interested in the art and craft of caring conversations. And you write 
you focus on your small world, giving it soul, and on making the world a place that is emotionally healthy and capable of loving connections. And I love that line that you draw between the small world, like the the things that we might care about just in ourselves and how that is so embedded in the larger world around us. Will you talk about that a little bit? Well, yes, there's a, this is an old teaching, you know, an ancient, ancient teaching of uh, how we participate, our souls participate in the soul of the world and the larger, larger soul. We are not limited to who we are. And to, so I think that means that's not only a very mystical thing to say, it's also refers to the planet, that we are part of the planet and our lives are intertwined with the lives of other people on the planet. So that kind of expansion of oneself, I think, is an important growing up experience. It's like you, the older you get, the more you identify outside yourself. So less and less narcissistic, less and less focused on self and more going out. So I, I like that idea of also of a therapy of the world that because the whole point of this book is to give a place to a therapeutic way of being and speaking and being with people, being with a person, as opposed to, let's say, just enjoying a friendship or uh, playing a game or uh, discussing something or eating together. Being therapeutic together is that one person is actually being with the other in a way that's going to help them get through a really tough time. So someone may call you to say they're getting divorced or they're sick or they have a surgery coming up or they're, they just got fired from their job and they're really upset and disturbed. They don't know what's going to happen next. And they need to talk to somebody. And if you can find it in yourself to say, I think I can do that. And you go and talk to somebody. That's what I mean by a therapeutic conversation as opposed to some other kind. So that's one way of being in this world in the bigger sense, the world soul. And one of the ways that you bring that sort of connection into the world soul is through myth, if I'm not mistaken. You write quite a bit about the importance of knowing stories, of knowing myth and looking for that in conversations, yes? Yes, I think the myth mythology does tell the stories of the soul. That is the stories that are the bigger, the bigger ones that are human, that you can call it archetypal if you like, which is some of the work I do. What you're doing there is with myth is you're, you're reading stories and encountering figures in the stories that evoke the larger story that we are always living, the story that's living through us. So at moments we may be Hamlet, you know, uh, depressed and, and worried in, in our relationship to father, to father somehow, to our father. And uh, that's Hamlet. Or you might be concerned about your sexuality and uh, relationships that way. And so the goddess Aphrodite, the presence of her, is thinking of her as a mythic presence, and that this myth is now being lived through my, through me and my life in my own way. That knowledge of mythology can give you a deeper understanding of what's happening to you that this is not to me, this is a human experience. And the more I know about how humans experience this, the more I'm 
I'm, the better I might see what's happening with me. Mm. One of the things that you wrote that caught my attention was the the nudge not to not to use the myth as um, as people, I think, but as more as energy. So it's not imagining Hamlet the man as much as it is the energy that he's expressing. Is that correct? That's correct. These yeah. mythic figures are not humans. Yeah. They are not humans. Uh, one of my teachers, uh, James Selman, at the end of his life called them powers. I think that's not a bad word for them. These different, uh, specifically different powers that uh, play through us, work, live through us. So they are not human beings, and to treat them that way is, would be a mistake, probably. Uh, they are, they are uh, the powers that live through us. We are not, you know, when we, let's say, a person falls in love with someone, that's not the first time this has ever happened to a human being, you know, and so uh, you, you can go to myth to see how it has happened to human beings or what, how that figure is, imagine it in that bigger sense. So uh, the mythology uh, expands and uh, uh, I think enriches our appreciation for what's happening in our lives. When we um, talk about meditation, one of the things that we spend a lot of time exploring is the paradox that often shows up within that. And I caught that you wrote, the myth is complete only when two sides of the story are in play. And, and to me, what I heard in that was paradox. I wonder if that's what you meant by it. Um, but I, I'm interested in that shadow versus light or you know, the, the positive side and the, and the heavier or the negative side, perhaps showing up within the stories that we're watching unfold. Yes, always, always that's true. And whenever it's something like that is really split apart, you know there's something in, in trouble. There's something not working out. So like someone who is just too bright and cheery, you know, something's not quite right there. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a darker side to life too. And if you don't have both, and the same if someone's too dark, you know, they just haven't discovered the light side of life. Mm. So we need we need both of those. And uh, not to have them split and part of life. Jung was very, very, Carl Jung was very big on this, that we need to get those split parts uh, reconciled. That's a very important part of uh, caring for our souls. Mm. So my favorite chapter is this chapter about getting stuck and waiting as the human. I mean, I... I'm, I'm somebody who writes in the margins of books. I, I love to make myself notes and underline things. And I, I like did the whole page. I just wrote, whoa, <laughs> across the top. Cause this felt really important. And I don't think that I have read that anywhere. I would love for you to talk to us about this experience of stuckness and the invitation that you offer that indeed that's where we're supposed to be sometimes. Yes. So one of the things that uh, one of the, if I can start with this, one of the more general general approaches to therapy that I use is to, uh, I got it from Hillman, just to go with the symptom. We don't we don't uh, try to get rid of a symptom. We are not the enemy of the symptom. We are we don't like it. You know, symptoms are not nice. Uh, being depressed or being anxious or uh, worried. But you don't want to go against them. You want to uh, 
find out what they are, what they're doing, and how they might be gradually uh, transformed into something. Themselves reveal what they are at root, but um, helpful and useful to us. So being stuck then, I would I take in the same way. I'd say, well, I don't want to just get rid of this feeling of being stuck. I want to see if there's some way I can redeem it and see if I can understand it better and appreciate what it's trying to do. What if what if I need to be stuck now? You know, what if that's the whole thing? That maybe it's a good idea or necessary at this point to be not moving. Who's to say we should always be progressing? That's not not an obvious thing. So um that's part of this whole uh, section on being stuck with, that's why I, what I do is I, in a way, kind of translate stuckness into waiting so that it's a little less, sounds less evil and more, more something that uh, really can be useful. We can wait. Although it's not an easy power for uh, a contemporary person. We don't like to wait too much. We want everything done right now. So it's a challenge for us, but if we can learn the skill of waiting, I think that would be probably a good solution to stuckness, to feeling stuck. And so how might you help, help if you were to be in a conversation with a friend that's complaining of that very feeling, of feeling stuck, of not knowing the next step, mm-hmm. how, how would you guide somebody to invite them to, to wait? <laughs> what what's the offering there? Well, what I would do, I'd, I'd first of all explore the stuckness. I would say, I'd inquire, for example, uh, what is this like? What is the? Tell me more specifically. When? What circumstances do you feel stuck? And uh, what is the feeling like? Do you get frustrated with that? Is it something you just can't stand? Does it does it remind you of anything? What what is it? And then I might ask, well, have you been in this situation in the past ever where you felt stuck? And make that comparison. That kind of thing can be useful at times to be able to see that this is a pattern. It's not It's not uh, the first and only time. That can be helpful. But what it does, all those kinds of questions, at least, they it does several things. It opens up, it sorts, helps sort to the experience. That's a very important idea, to sort it out into its elements so that you are not dealing with something that's too too thick to uh, concentrate with. You sort it out. You get to know it better. And, uh, and then as you sort it out, you are not so uh, victimized by it. You get, to, uh, you get to see it for what it is more, and so you can live with it more easily. So that's one thing. And you bring you put it into a narrative form. We need narrative. Jung said this too. All our emotions needed the corresponding narrative. We need some sort of story to go with it, or at least an image to go with it. So that, but I think narrative is the good thing when, the, when you're speaking therapeutically. That simply means that you, you move into a, a story form, and then you're able to get somewhere with it, with the theme. And and I and one of the invitations you also offer is to pay attention to dreams. Yes. Yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Mm. So I just had a, a lovely experience. One of my teachers is a depth psychologist and does a lot of dream work, and just hosted this space where we could come and share a dream. 
And I realized in that moment that that's not something that exists in my day-to-day conversation, but it would feel, um, I'm going to do it now, but I haven't in general been like, hi friend, let me tell you about this dream I had because they feel odd or maybe vulnerable. And um, I loved reading your invitation of like, let's bring this into our caring conversations. In my work as a therapist, I I spend, I I figure 90% of the time with dreams. And I find that they are, they tell me more about what's going on much more than what than what a person tells me. You know, what they tell me is usually full of their own agenda, you know, their own what they want me to hear. But the dream reveals a lot more. It's not easy because dreams are imagistic. So it's not it, it's never easy. And it's a good thing. It's never easy to take any image like a painting and talk too much about it. You don't want to overanalyze it, or you don't. It's not easy sometimes to know what the painting's about, what's happening. Same with the dream; you don't know what it's about, but through some reflection, you, I'm sure you know through reflection and conversation, like especially in a group, uh, people, different people will have a different angle. Something will catch them that really draws them. They they say what it's what the, what they've seen in the dream. Uh, if they're not overinterpreting, it's good then um, all of that can can help. It's the same with a dream. So the dreams can give you an idea about what's happening to you that uh, you wouldn't get otherwise. So yeah, dreams are very important in this whole process. And not in the sense that, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so tell me if I'm wrong, but I got the impression (laughs) from reading that it's not, let me look up what this symbol means as much as it is being with the feelings evoked in the dream. Yes? Well, almost for me, me, but I do. Certainly not symbols, no. Dreams are not symbols. They don't, one thing doesn't stand for another. Every dream figure is individual and unique and is itself. You might be, you might see resemblances to other things that you know about, let's, and that's very useful. You know, you can do that. You can find, you know, if you dream of water, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, water, it's emotion. I have a tendency to think of a body of water as a source of life. But that, too, is symbolic. So I don't want to take every dream that someone has of a body of water and say this is a source of life. That's treating it symbolically. You want to treat it as an image, which is different, which is that it, uh, it exists in its own it will remain its own self, undecipherable when you finish talking about it. But you might get some insight into it as you go, as you talk. And, and the more you study these things and the more you know about art and poetry and uh, images, probably the better you'll be at uh, with a dream of being able to say, oh, yeah, this dream is really revealing a lot here. But uh, it's not about symbol. But it's not just the emotions either. It's... Uh, it's not that. It's uh, characters, patterns, uh, scenes, scenarios, uh, vignettes, uh, short stories, all kinds of things that are part of, part of the, the uh, what's the word, genre, the various genres of our life experiences. Sometimes they're narratives, sometimes they're poetic, sometimes they're music. You know, that's the forms our experiences take. 
So uh, it's not just about the emotions. Yeah. And through the course of the book, you it feels that you're every chapter sort of preparing us for the next chapter. So you talk about the vessel itself. You talk about the ability to listen. You move us through dreams. And the chapter I'm starting tonight that I'm very excited about because I have two little children is parents as soul guides. Yes. And, you know, it's a conversation that I, I have so often with people that are, especially after 2020, especially parenting through this pandemic, which felt unbelievably intense in some stages. And, I, you know, one of the perpetual questions is, am I, am I present enough? Am I paying close enough attention? Am I, you know, being able to be as caring as I need to be in this moment when it feels like hundreds of things are piling on at once? Can you tell us a little bit about what to look for in this chapter? Well, this the book is about uh, being therapeutic. And I don't know anyone else who isn't who is more therapeutic day day after day than a parent. I mean, you have to you have to talk in a way that is helps your children deal with so many painful moments. I mean, they might just get hurt, scratched, or something, or they may uh uh, they may feel frightened or they may be uh, upset. They want something badly. They may be acting out a lot of stuff. And so you, ha I think a parent has to be therapeutic so much of the time. I'm thinking of that as kind of a genre, a way of talking, therapy, a way of being therapeutic. You're not always therapeutic. You know, I mean, they don't have to be therapeutic all the time. Sometimes, you know, I just be having a great time or some hard at work or focused. But there are moments, especially when another person is, is in pain of some kind, where you are called to be therapeutic, and a parent certainly has to do that. So I think it would be helpful to be alert and uh, aware that this is a therapeutic moment. And when I speak to the child now, I'm not just speaking as a, another person. I'm speaking as a therapist. For five minutes, I have a therapist hat on, and that's how I'm going to be, and I'm going to speak that way. That means I'm going to speak in a special way where I'm not just, I've given up my own concerns for the moment. I'm not, I'm not now I'm going to focus on this other person. That's what the therapists do. I'm not going to talk about myself now. This is, I'm not the, I'm not the, the point right now, this other person is. And that's a, one of the challenges of a professional therapist to say, can I be here and really give my attention to the other and, and, not, and not indulge myself while I'm doing that? I think that's a big thing for parents to be able to not indulge themselves, indulge their anger, their frustration or whatever, and not relate to the child as though they were just another person. They are at the moment therapeutic. You are a therapist and so you. You respond that way. And what do you do as a therapist? You you don't tell a person what to do. You know, you don't tell them, do this, do that. You don't even give them advice. That's not therapy. What you do is you uh, you help them express their, their experience right now to be patient with them until they can find good words for it and help them find words for it. 
and uh, and also um, maybe they themselves then finding their words know what they're experiencing that relieves some of the pressure because if you know what you're going through it can be a little bit easier. That has so many implications just not even just for parenting but all of our conversations and and truly you know this whole time I've been as I've read this book I've thought I would call meditation soul therapy and 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 I don't mean to pull the title from your book but in the sense that at least from my perspective meditation is this opportunity to be with yourself as you are and acknowledge your experience. And what you just said about not indulging in the anger or the frustration or, and and that is exactly what comes up is when you're a meditator, especially a new meditator, and there's so many thoughts or you feel so antsy, you want that bell to ring, you can't sit still for 10 minutes. And then you're upset that you didn't sit still for 10 minutes. And this gift of like, well, if you were to put on that therapeutic hat for yourself or for somebody you're in a conversation with, that feels like a tremendous shift potentially in the way we interact. I think it is. I think it's a big shift. It doesn't have to be for always. You don't always have to be in that special spot, but it is a moment. That that's it's very hard to say this. I don't know. I haven't found the words for it, but that if you could, the more you could see that you are in this role at the moment and not something else, I think the better you have a chance of sticking to it and seeing what you have to do. And yes, I think uh, meditating could very well be seen under the scope of, uh, of a soul therapy. Certainly, there are a lot of things we do, but uh, I would also say baking a cake could be soul therapy. You know, it depends how you do it. So intention is part of it, the intention of what you're doing and the framing of it, and maybe even the style in which you do it can all, that all then benefits from imagining it to be soul therapy. The last thing I want to ask you about is um, I, I deeply enjoy that you end each chapter with an original poem. And I found it to me feels almost like a, like a little package I'm going to take away and like be with for a while and kind of open up and explore. And it it's a summary and not in the same breath. And I wonder if you would share a little bit about your your choice to do that, how that came about, what you hope to achieve with that that little inclusion. That's so so special. It was totally uh, unplanned and unthought. Just it just came out. I just started doing them. I don't know why it just slipped right out. They're not real poems, you know. They're not poetry, but they're they're verses that, uh, as you say, summarize a bit what's going on. I didn't want to be uh, limited to uh, prose style, prose requirements, and all that. I wanted to be able to use my language more freely. I wanted to be able to concentrate theme of the chapter and just sort of blurt it out in a way that's not prose, not, not logical, but that still expresses the kernel of what was there. It does. And I feel like it, in a unique way, it seems to give space almost for, as a reader to 
let my understanding of what I just read happen more so than if I was to dive right into the next chapter and, and not have that little pause almost. I hadn't thought of that. That's really good. I like that. I'll have to remember that. <laughs> that's good. I hadn't thought of that. No, that's very good. Also, I was, I thought that what, uh, what I thought when you were saying that too, was that it, uh, it, uh, it makes it less uh, uh, explained, like it's, uh, it takes you to closer to a dream place. You know, let's talk about dream. One of my, uh, one of my, another one of my teachers was a man named Rafael Lopez Pedraza. And he, he said, uh, he was very good, very deep man, very subtle. And he said that as you get older, that's a good idea. He, a lot of human beings get dreamier. They uh, they don't uh, they don't live so logically and so clearly, and with such black and white judgments and expressions. And I felt I feel that this is a little like that. It's like um, getting away from that clarity and moving more toward the poetic. I love that. And I feel like that's such a gift for, for us as readers. So thank you for including that in the book. As I say, it was, came up unconsciously. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share about the book or tell us about um, where we can find it yourself? What do you want to share with us? <laughs> well, it can be found anywhere. It's everywhere. You know, it's a big publisher. They, uh, they have their books everywhere and all online and all bookstores. I recommend to people that that they go to their local bookstore and order it from them to keep those bookstores alive and well. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say that we haven't talked about that's in the book that means something to me, and that is to be, maybe we did a little bit about COVID, but is to be uh, therapeutic in our in our attempt, attention to the world as it's what's going on right now. This, uh, our country right now is, is in a deep neurosis. It's split. That's a sign of neurosis being very split into the two parts, really almost right down the middle. That's just the way neurosis happens. We get split and that's gotta be healed and reconciled. That requires therapy. That means that each of us have to Try to figure out that when we talk about what's going on in our country, we could be therapists at times. You know, speak the way a parent speaks to the child in a way, in the sense that uh, you don't just indulge yourself. You, you, uh, you try to speak in such a way that we can all get through this and heal this rift. That's not good for any of us. And, and be more therapeutic in our language. And the language we see in the press and in the among politicians is not therapeutic, rarely, rarely therapeutic. And uh, it's usually divisive and that contributes to the, uh, to the problem. So I think we can bring this idea of being therapists ourselves to also our relationship publicly in public life. Is there anything that you wanna say around a key takeaway or a nudge of that of, of how we move into conversation about those really triggering, you know, it feels so triggering when these, these huge topics around 
vaccinations and masks and social justice, they come up and you have your feelings so strongly held. How do you not indulge? <laughs> It, you know, there's so many people who are trying to improve themselves and to become more spiritual and all these things, and they go and they meditate and they do things that really appeal to them. A lot of that is very self-indulgent, you know, it really is. And it, the real the real test comes when you're faced with someone who just his thought is just the opposite, feelings are just the opposite of yours. How do you do that? That's a challenge. If you can find a solution to that, I'll give you credit for really being somebody. It's much more of a challenge than learning how to keep your distractions out of your meditation. Although that's important, it's still different. You know, it's more of a challenge. So I think that the, that the way to do that then is to, one way that I do anyway, is I try to see, is there something in what is being said that I think is right and needs to be heard? If we are split, there's probably something. It's just like we deal with a symptom. What is in the symptom that needs to be heard? So if someone says uh, to me that if they say, well, I don't want to wear a mask because I don't want to be told what to do. I don't think that's the, that's where we are now. I should have freedom, you know, kind of a libertarian approach to things. And uh, I think to myself, Yes, that's an important value, isn't it? That we have the freedom not to have this some people in charge telling us what to do all the time. I want to keep that in mind. I don't want that to go away. And then as I think about it more, how important it might be, the less I feel polarized from the person that I'm talking to. Not a lot, maybe doesn't solve it, but I'm getting there. So I think that's one way to do it. Yeah, I, lo I love that invitation. And I do think this is, uh, this is the work that we're, that we're trying to do, I think, right? When we say that we want to be more meditative, more reflective, more aware, or more awake, more awake in the way that we move through the world, it asks us to have these conversations in a way that um, I don't know that I would have used the word therapeutic before. That's definitely the word I'm going to use now but at least in a way that um, there's more listening, if nothing else, uh, as part of the conversation. Yes, not just saying, well, these are my values and your values are so different. There's no way we're ever going to get anywhere. Mm. I mean, what are you doing? Probably waiting for that person to change, <laughs> but not waiting for yourself to change. <laughs> and so there has to be, this is the thing. It's hard to hard to make that move, but it, that's why I think it relates to practice of therapy because a therapist really can't expect their clients to do what they can't do. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So I think a challenge. A therapist is always challenged because they know that their client has to do something in order to get out of the, the stuckness they're in, but uh, they couldn't do the same themselves. There's something wrong. So that's a big challenge with a therapist. I have to be able to do that too. I can't just tell my clients to do things I find impossible. I think it's like that when we get into a split situation. Uh, if you can't change, you can't be flexible about your position because you believe in it so much, and this other person does, are you waiting for that person to become more like you? Is that it? Mm. 
it doesn't work that way. You're the one because you have some awareness and consciousness, I guess. You're the one that's got to got to make the move and do something that is therapeutic at the moment. Man, that is huge. <laughs> I don't have another word for it. That's huge. And that's a really powerful thing to walk away with from this conversation is you're the one, right? You're the one. Thank you. Thank you for writing this book, for taking the time to talk to us today about this. The book is Soul Therapy, The Art and Craft of Caring Conversations. I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to The Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find the show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.